Uh, today is kind of a summation of World War I. We are going to go through some of the overarching themes of the war. Uh, a couple of those themes are this kind of concept of perception versus reality. So what people are seeing at home versus what soldiers are seeing and experiencing on the battlefield are drastically different. And one of the reasons they are drastically different is that the government is reporting things that aren't wholly accurate. Uh, one of the changes in the 20th century for Europe is that they're starting to lose some of their traditional faith in uh, people telling them the truth. You think back in, in European history and for thousands of years, or at least 1,500 years, Europe had always been told by the Catholic Church what truth was, and it was kind of just accepted as part of life. And then you get the Protestant Reformation, and with the Protestant Reformation, you see a, a significant shift away from kind of always accepting traditional power structures version of truth. But that being said, most of Europe is still very uneducated. So you fast forward to the 20th century, and people are now going to public education systems. They're becoming more educated. Plus, cultures in Europe are far more developed and mature. Um, and so even though in the United States, we don't really get to a place where we distrust our government until about Vietnam, um, in Europe, I would argue that they will start distrusting their government far earlier than we will. Um, because World War I is such a kind of a shady business. They, they have the entire time the war is going on, their government is telling them that everything's fine. The trenches are fine. The trenches are promoting clear air and good health. Uh, they're, they're reporting in the paper that the, the soldiers are just itching to go over the top. Uh, and there's a significant amount of censorship of the war itself. And so when people actually get back from the war, you see that Europe is starting to understand that perception and reality are far apart. And that's important for us because what we will see coming next after World War I is this age of anxiety. And the age of anxiety could probably also be considered the age of discovery, but really more from an, a human perspective, where people are starting to ask really important questions, like very existential questions. Why am I here? What is this about? Uh, everything that I used to believe, do I believe it or not? It, it becomes a very strong period of questioning and discovery for most humans. And so you don't really get that without World War I. World War I is so devastating from a, a human cost but also from a psychological cost that people start to express themselves differently. They start to experience the world differently. And what ultimately matters to us is they start distrusting their governments uh, and their traditional forms of authority even more than they probably ever have in Europe. So that is a significant shift. I'm going to give you some evidence. Uh, if you are writing an essay about World War I, or if you're writing a short answer about World War I, and you need evidence. Now, the, the learning target that we are focusing on today uh, also is kind of this discrepancy between uh, technology and strategy. So uh, the learning target that's on the board, but also the learning target that you're dealing with with your, your memes and your political cartoons and comic strips, that kind of thing that you're going to finish today at the end of class. That learning target has to do with how they're, they're fighting with 20th century technology, but they're fighting also with 19th century strategy. 
And so there's a, a significant difference between the execution of the war and how it should be executed and the technology that's really killing them faster and making it more difficult for them to attack. And it becomes an incredibly defensive war. So I wanted to give you a couple of battles that can be kind of evidence of, first of all, wars and specifically battles in World War I take a really long time. So you don't have one or two day battles, you have month long battles, or in one case, a five month long battle where it's just back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. There are wars that last five months. So to have a single battle be such a significant um, casualty for in Verdun, you have 500,000 casualties on both sides. It's a million casualties in Verdun. Verdun was a a fortress battle where uh, Germany is kind of fighting up to a French fortress. Probably the most devastating of the battles of World War I is the Somme. And the Somme actually had two rounds of the Somme, the first and second battle of the Somme, as do have the first and second battle of the Marne. The Somme was probably the most devastating battle in World War I. And again, if you're doing this for evidence and you want to talk about how technology and strategy are far apart, the Somme is a trench battle. It's five months long. It kills a million people. It's so devastating that in in one battle, one day of the battle, Britain lost 60,000 soldiers. That's the equivalent of all of Novato uh, and part of Terra Linda. Like that, that's a lot of people to die in one day um, in war. Now, obviously, World War II will have astronomical death rates when we talk to talk about bombing populations and things like that. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, the United States in Tokyo bombed using firebombs and killed up to 100,000 people in one night. So having this type of number is is big for World War One. Um, but World War II will become common, especially once you, you start looking at specifically firebombing. Firebombing becomes pretty pretty devastating. One of the other shifts, and this is, again, reinforcing this concept that technology and strategy are not really on an even plane, um, people are starting to also, because medicine is pro- is progressing and we're able to save your life, but not necessarily your limbs. So, Yes, we're able to, you know, cut off a limb, stop an infection, uh, make it so that you're not going to necessarily die from a wound. But there's a life cost also because your way of life and your um, standard of living once you get back from the war is going to shift. Uh, If you ever watch a, a movie or a show that's kind of centered around the 1920s, I guarantee you that show is going to have a couple of soldiers in there that are missing arms or uh, maybe maybe even have like a face prosthetic where, you know, they, they had a significant issue with a, a grenade or something like that. So um, prosthetics become incredibly important right after World War One because so many people are losing limbs. I mean, it, the, the bottom picture there uh, is actually a picture of a group of soldiers that went to war together from the same town. And they come home with a combined one leg because all the rest of them either lost, you know, lost all their legs. And one guy has got a leg left, but not a foot, just just the leg part. So what we're seeing is incredible devastation from a human cost. um, 
and and a lot of this again has to do with this discrepancy between how do you fight a, a trench war where you have incredible defensive measures but no real offensive measures to defeat it so <clears throat> um, as far as another thing that happens in war is that they start figuring out certain things that become really faux pas in war. So, for example, you would never put in World War II, they stopped putting people from the same city in the same company because there were times where if you had a lot of people signing up together or enlisting together from the same city, a lot of times they would go into the same company um, and if that was the case, and that company, let's just say, happened to go through the Somme, where 60,000 British people died in a day, it's very possible that that entire city or town comes home after the war and there's no more boys. Where it's literally just that, that creates, in a lot of ways, that, remember that lost generation? Well, part of the lost generation is, is mental, because people are coming back with significant um, mental illnesses but also physical. You are losing at times even entire generations of boys. And that's going to have a, a significant impact also on, um, you know, procreation and, and increasing of populations and things like that. And then to the point where after World War II, that's kind of possibly even why you have that baby boomer generation, um, which obviously is becoming a meme now. But uh, you have this period of time where, where you could have a devastating uh, situation for a town. You know, just imagine Northern California towns that are relatively small, like a Sutter or something like that. You know, really small high school, three, 400 people. Let's say that there's a war that breaks out and, you know, there's 200 boys in that high school. Those 200 boys and the 200 boys that just graduated go off to war. And if just imagine that that town loses those 400 kids, like that's significant to that town's future. Uh, so it, it does become something that people have to become more aware of uh, in the future. Now, as far as, and again, I said this earlier, these are quotes from newspapers at the time that people or the troops were just itching to go over the top. That is clearly not the case. You know, people were, they had to put orders in place where if you went over the top and came back into the trench, they had to shoot you. Like, clearly they weren't itching to go over the top. They were probably just waiting as long as they could or holding on as long as they could until their generals decided that they had to go over the top. Um, and, and clearly, again, perception of reality is very different. Um, also, they're reporting, like I said here, the government reports that press to the press that life in the trenches promoted good health and clear air. So there, it couldn't be farther from the truth. Again, you guys have read uh, a lot of the poetry of World War I and not even the, the, the nicer, kinder poetry, I think, avoided the fact that the war was still pretty deadly. Um, and then you get Robert Owen type poetry where it's like, yeah, it's pretty bad. Um, so we're going to get to America. Now, America will eventually join the war pretty much just in time for the war to end. But the reason that America joins, well, there's a couple of reasons and we're going to go through that. If you look at this chart, America has a bit of a choice to make. Um, there are 11 million German Americans at this point, which means that there's not this automatic we're anti-German. Um, that's actually not the case either in World War II. Uh, there's a lot of American Germans by the time we get to World War II. So a lot of people were very hesitant to go with, to war with Hitler even. Um, and to be fair, we actually funded a lot of early 
Hitler's Germany because it was useful uh, and financially a good idea. But when you look at the Irish Americans, they also hated the British. It's not like America had a, a great relationship with Britain um, since we obviously did break away from Britain. And while there is a cultural tie to the Allied side, um, what eventually becomes the case is that there's a very strong financial tie to the Allied side. As you can see in the box at the bottom here, we are funding the Allies at a rate that is really high. Obviously, we're still funding the Germans early in the war. And then by the time you get to about 1917, the shift of funds is very clear. We're, we're very much going towards one side of the war. And that's about the time that Wilson is pretty committed to joining the, the side of the Allies. The problem Wilson has, of course, is Congress. Uh, this is not something that is new in American history that a president and Congress does not get along. It's actually very common. Um, most presidencies, a couple of years into their presidency, there will be some kind of referendum on them, meaning that people get upset that the president, for whatever reason, they, they don't like what he's doing, and so they'll elect a Congress from the other party. Um, this happens all the time. It is very rare that presidents have both the presidency and Congress for their entire term. That's actually very rare. So what ends up happening for Wilson is that he has to deal with a Congress that doesn't necessarily believe everything that he wants to do is right. Um, surprise, surprise. So what he wants to do is get involved. This is the same thing that happens with FDR in World War II. He wants, FDR wants to get involved very early in the war, and it's not until much later that Congress finally allows that in Pearl Harbor happens. So, um, but when it comes to World War I, the, the three different things that we kind of chart as why the U.S. will get involved is, first of all, the blockades that uh, Germany does for the continent. <coughs> we are sending munition ships from the United States to the continent, specifically Britain mostly, and Germany starts sinking ships. Now, initially, they were only sinking purely munition ships, so mostly just cargo ships. Um, what we did in a way to get around this was we decided that we would put munitions on passenger ships. So we have the Lusitania, which is a passenger ship. There's 128 Americans on there. There's a lot of people on board as well. And we throw 4,200 cases of ammunition on there. Now, that's a lot of ammunition. Um, and what's ironic is both sides, the Americans and the Germans, use the Lusitania as propaganda. So how would you do that? Like, if you're the Americans, how would you use this as propaganda? <laughs> oh, those terrible Germans. They fired on a passenger ship. Look, at they killed 128 innocent Americans. Yes, uh, the, the Germans are definitely at fault here. And then the Germans could just say, oh, look at the Americans. They're hiding ammunition on a passenger ship. They're being, uh, you know, not forward thinking and, and, and doing it the proper way. So both sides can use this as propaganda. And they do. So this becomes one reason, um, random historical thing, is that apparently someone put a message in a bottle. And I'm not really sure it got there in time because, you know, Ben torpedoed send help, I don't think really would help you at, by the time someone found your bottle. But, you know, they tried. Um, after the Lusitania, they decided eventually to go to a policy by 1917 of unrestricted submarine warfare. When they do this, 
it now doesn't matter if you're a munition ship or a passenger ship because basically the Americans were cheating. They were just putting munitions on passenger ships and calling it good. The Germans were like, no, 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 no more. We're losing the war. We're just going to fire on everything. So if you're coming into the continent or to Britain, you're getting down. So they start sinking ships. Um, at this point, the U.S., specifically Wilson, uh, is, is very much involved in wanting to get involved with the war. Now, as a quick aside, because we skipped this when we did imperialism, America is going through its own imperialism phase. Remember the white man's burden, that whole thing where Kipling's basically going, hey, America, welcome, this is the white man's burden, yeah, yeah. Um, in the process of that, there's two policies, and you can put this in your notes, that really describe both American isolationism and American foreign policy at the time. The first one's called the Monroe Doctrine, and the second one's called the Roosevelt Corollary. Now, this is Teddy Roosevelt, not FDR. The Monroe Doctrine and the Roosevelt Corollary. Now, that is our foreign policy at the time. What the Monroe Doctrine basically did is it made us the dominant feature of the Western Hemisphere. So we basically said, Europe, you go ahead and stay in Europe. We'll take the Western Hemisphere. We've got it from here. And of course, this is right around the Spanish-American War. Let's go ahead and move the Spanish out of here. America's got this from now on. The Roosevelt Corollary um, is this kind of, it's the stick. It's like we are the police force of the Western Hemisphere. If there's a problem here in the Western Hemisphere, we'll take care of it. Again, Europe, we've got this. Now, the other side of that coin is that Congress and the U.S. is very much isolationist in this period, meaning that we are going to take care of the West. We want to stay out of Europe. That is part of the reason why Congress keeps kind of resisting joining the war. It's like it's one thing to, to fund the war. It's another thing to join the war. So we're in a very isolationist phase. It's not until after World War II that the U.S. goes away from an isolationist policy and now becomes really, in effect, the policeman of the world. But that's after World War II. The last component of this is the Zimmerman note. Now, I do not subscribe to many conspiracy theories. But this is one I can get on board with. Now, the reason is this. The British were the best code breakers in the world in the 20th century. Uh, by the time you get to World War II, they were so dominant in code breaking that they were able to essentially send messages to Hitler and convince him that he was just intercepting things rather than actually just us giving him bad information. Like the British are really good at what they're doing. Uh, there's a great movie called The Imitation Game that really goes into this more in detail um, if you're interested. But... The British are really good at code breaking. What happens with the Zimmerman note is that the British intercept a note between Germany and Mexico and hand it to the United States and are like, look, Germany is going to try to help Mexico regain territory in Texas, New Mexico, and Arizona. Now, does that sound plausible? No. It's not plausible for Germany to help, first of all, because Germany is in the middle of a world war where basically they're by themselves at this point fighting the rest of the world. So them sending troops to Mexico to help us or help Mexico retake territories sounds ridiculous, if anyone's thinking logically. 
And also, Mexico is in no place to try to defeat. Now, for all you got to do in America is tell Texas that Mexico is going to take them over again. And Texas gets very, very mad. Like, all right, let's do this thing. So the British, I, I think, I, I wouldn't use this on a test necessarily verbatim, but what I think is that the British did their best to fudge this, to make it look like this was a thing. Either way, this became incredible propaganda for the U.S. Like, Wilson just has to go to Congress and be like, look, they're going to try to take over parts of the United States. We need to go defeat Germany, that kind of thing. And Congress is like, that's it. They've sunk the ships, and now they're trying to take over territory, not Texas. Let's do this thing. Um, So is it possible that a German general was unintelligent enough to send this note? Sure. Is it probable? No. Um, if Mexico got this, they'd be like, nope, we're, we're kidding. Uh, because this was not necessarily something that really had, I think, a lot of teeth. But again, from a propaganda standpoint, it, it works fine. So because of the Zimmerman note and the sinking of four unarmed American ships, we eventually declare war on Germany, and we will, uh, thank you, we will be quickly joining the war right at the tail end of it, just to kind of clean up the pieces. So, at the point where the now seemingly whole world is against Germany, because the Ottomans aren't really helping at this point, the Austrians aren't really helping at this point, so it's just Germany versus everyone. Except for Russia, because Russia had their own thing going on. We'll talk about that tomorrow. Um, we'll do the Russian Revolution in a day. Now, remember how we... No, easy. Remember how the Americans will start demonizing the Germans in propaganda? We talked about this before. I'm going to show you a couple of pieces of propaganda that really demonstrate this on a very heightened level. Um First of all, this first one's one of my favorites because it kind of combines all of the different possible narratives about the Germans into one thing. So first of all, they make them they make the Germans into a nice King Kong looking person who is, by the way, landing on America, on American soil and clearly incorporating the rape of Belgium. So it's like all of the possible negatives. So you got like the Zimmerman note where the Germans are going to come help the Mexicans. And you got the, the fact that the Germans are fighting as barbarians and the raping and pillaging of, the, of Belgium. And that's all intertwined into one nice enlistment propaganda poster. So propaganda can be really fun, right? When you're trying to really heighten the level of propaganda. This is another good example, right? Buy some liberty bonds. This is how the government raises money when they're at war is they, they sell bonds. And you got you to gotta show the Germans as the uh, evil you know, monster-looking, zombie-looking type people that are coming to get you, that kind of thing, right? Um, So propaganda is pretty strong at this time. Uh, Now, the end of the war, you're like, wait, it's over? Yes, it's over, sort of, Um, is the armistice, at least. That means a ceasefire. Is November 11th, 1918. Um, 
It's not as important, I think, as the Treaty of Versailles, which is 1919. So this is where if you're in a uh, trivia group, which I know all of you guys are, have a trivia group, um, if they want the end of World War II, it's technically 1918. But the Versailles Treaty is not signed until 1919. Um which is kind of annoying because usually like treaties are what end wars. But when they stop fighting, it's technically 1918. Um, Now, when the war is over, a couple important things happen. The Ottoman Empire essentially dissolves into a number of different places, including Turkey. The Austrian-Hungarian Empire dissolves into a bunch of European countries. The German Empire is over and will re- be replaced, and you can put this in your notes now, with the Weimar Republic. And you're welcome for my amazing handwriting. Uh, the Weimar Republic. Now, after I give you the World War I statistics, I'm going to go over the Treaty of Versailles. The Treaty of Versailles is the most devastatingly bad document ever written. It is so bad for Germany that it is hard to not sympathize with them when they finally decide to go with Hitler. And I know that sounds awful because you're like, Hitler's bad. Yes, Hitler was bad. I will never say he's not. But when you look at what happened to Germany after World War I, it was really hard for them to resist a nationalist that tried to get them to have an actual economy and get them out of the worst depression in all of human history. Yes, he had a bit of anti-Semitism going on. Yes, he was a bit of, you know, a bad guy. But he presented Germany with an option where no one else really had one. And so I realize that it, it's going to feel weird when we start looking at, at Hitler because you're going to start realizing it would have been incredibly hard to say no to this guy. Um, that's the question that people always ask me. Like, how can someone like Hitler take over a country? Well, I'll tell you how. The Treaty of Versailles. That's how. Um, it, it's kind of the, the only way someone like Hitler can take over a country. Um, now, as far as statistics go, About 10 million soldiers died, 20 million casualties, lots and lots of money, lots and lots of big countries. And in just in case there wasn't enough devastation, there was a bit of a flu that killed 20 to 50 million people worldwide. So it was a bad year. Years. Now, the... Ironically, the Spanish flu was almost exactly 100 years ago. But um, this period is going to feel a lot like another period in European history. Remember? No, no, no. Not today. History, not today. So in European history, what period of time, what period of time feels a lot like this kind of very Armageddon period? The end of the Middle Ages, right? The plague, the papal schism, the Little Ice Age, all like mass starvations, the Hundred Years' War. And they're sitting there going, hey, you know, four horsemen of the apocalypse, here it comes. 
if you look at World War One, it's very similar, right? You got a world war that kills lots of people. You got a Spanish flu that kills lots of people. You got a, a depression that is coming that's going to devastate the world economy. All of that precedes probably what is one of the most incredible eras in thought, in creativity, in art. Um, and that's generally the human spirit. I think whenever the human spirit is challenged the most, that is generally when you see it coming back the most and actually able to provide people with some significant changes in the way things are viewed. Um, you have the, the new physics coming in with the theory of relativity and Einstein and whatnot, Max Planck. Um, you got existentialism coming back from the 1800s and people are like, oh, those guys actually existed. Let's study what they actually said. Um, you got art styles like surrealism and you got cubism and all sorts of new concepts that become really quite incredible to be fair. Um, so it's, it's a really expressive period. Now, we're going to talk about the Treaty of Versailles. When we talk about the big four, what we mean by the big four, they're, they're down there. You got England or Britain. You got France. You got Italy and USA. Now, of the big four, the one that means the least is Italy. Because they show up and they're like, hey, remember all the land that we wanted for switching sides? And then the, the U.S. comes in, they're like, well, actually, what we thought we might do is give people the opportunity to have their own countries. And Italy's like, all right, I rage quit. And they leave. Uh, and so, well, not yet, but yes. Uh, soon, soon enough. They'll, they'll create the fascism soon enough. Yeah. Um, so they, they leave, and then eventually they'll come back, sign the treaty. Now, I'm going to go through, go through each of these guys and tell you what to write down for each of them. First of all, for David Lloyd George, you need that he is the prime minister. I'm assuming that I'm close on these things, but my, my uh, thing looks different than yours, so I'm trying to draw where I think it is. Um, so you need that he's the prime minister, and you also need the last one here. George understood that if you gave a really tough treaty to Germany, that it might backfire. He was a realist. He did understand that this was probably not going to work very well. But the German or the British people are angry, as they should be. They lost lots of people and time and effort and money. And yeah, the French are also really angry. We'll talk about that in a second. And so George is sitting there going, this might not end well but I have to kind of go in this direction. So he did understand what was going on. The most probably important figure other than Wilson is going to be Clemenceau. And you do need all of his points here. Clemenceau is alive during the Franco-Prussian War. So he, he lived through the last time Germany take, took advantage of France. They stole Alsace-Lorraine, which was, what, what was Alsace-Lorraine, remember? What, what did it have that Germany wanted? A ton of and a couple of that they saw. Yeah, so it, it basically had resources that they needed. So iron ore, um, coal. And what it gave them was things they needed for the Industrial Revolution. Well, you get to the 20th century, and now France is going to be like, okay, we want Alsace-Lorraine back, and that's going to be a thing. But 
France had suffered greatly twice because of the Germans, the Franco-Prussian War. And even though they won World War I, the whole war pretty much got fought on French territory. So they, were, they want paid back for what happened. And then remember what happened after the Franco-Prussian War. What did the alliance or what did the, the treaty look like for France? It was pretty devastating. German soldiers are going to stay here until you pay us back. The French pay them back for the war. Um, the French also have to give up territory. So the French are angry, very angry. The other guy is Orlando. Now, this is kind of the crybaby of the group. He wants territory. He does not get the territory. So he literally leaves and then comes back to sign the treaty eventually because he doesn't get anything that he wanted initially. Unfortunate. So you just need those points there. Now, the last guy at the table is Woodrow Wilson. Now, Wilson is a, he's an optimist, he's an idealist, he's, he's uh, definitely into the idea that he could, along with other world leaders, actually solve world problems without going to war. Like, he, he's very cute. Now, Wilson actually believed that this, the things in the 14 points that he came up with would solve some problems it's possible that they could have but he's got a lot of stuff going against him the biggest thing going against him is congress because his own congress doesn't go along with a lot of the stuff he wants to do so it becomes really difficult for what he actually uh provides now what i would write down is this one and this one and we're going to go over the 14 points real quick uh like i said he was, a, he was an idealist. He believed that this stuff could actually work. And his 14 points are going to be celebrated by the Parisians. I mean, the French love him. Um, the British quite liked him. He was a bit of a star at the Treaty of Versailles. Uh, the difficulty, of course, was, like I said, Congress. Congress doesn't jump on board with what Wilson is doing. We just decide we want to go back to isolationism. Look what happened when we invested in Europe. We had to get involved in this giant war. And we're going to not do that again. So I'm going to give you a Cliff Notes version of the 14 points. You don't need to write down the Cliff Notes version. You're going to write the Cliff Notes of the Cliff Notes down. Got it. Yeah. So I'm going to show you what the 14 points were. Condensed. And then I'm going to give you the notes part that you want to write down for it. Okay. So this is what it looks like. Um, let me reload this here. The first significant one in some of these should be like, oh, yeah, that makes sense because, you know, World War I and stuff. No secret treaties because we found out that was a bad idea. Um, international waters and free passage. This specifically has to do with U-boats and the Germans sinking ships. Like, that's why we got involved in the war in the first place. Free trade is important to us because we are uh, definitely the beacon of capitalism. Reduction of militaries. That doesn't really happen after the war colonies should be reconsidered that will not happen because you know they need resources after world war one leave russia alone now that does happen because they are in a bit of a russian revolution and lenin will mostly figure it out 
Belgian neutrality. This is the idea that if you want to be a neutral country, you should be. And Germany shouldn't just be able to walk through you because you want to. Uh, French territory does get reestablished. Italy does get aligned based on nationality. The Austro-Hungarian Empire is supposed to have autonomy to kind of break up how they want. Now, what does the word autonomy mean? Yeah, so you, you are not told what to do by someone else. That's your autonomy, right? So if you're, you know, you guys are teenagers, there's a lot of times you're like, Mom, I just want to do what I want to do. Stop telling me what I have to do. That's you wanting autonomy. Unfortunately, most of the time for you guys, you don't get autonomy, right? You have to do what mom or dad says or your gardener or whatever is going on. Now, 11, 12, and 13 are very linked. And this is where colonies kind of thought, hey, what about us? Because self-determination is the idea that you should be able to have a country if you can create a constitution, have a government, and you're a specific culture or language, you should have a country. Um, unfortunately for colonies, that did not apply. So a lot of colonies actually, after World War I, thought, hey, like India, hey, we're ready. We'll do the independence thing. Britain's like, well, you know, not really quite ready for us, so we'll give you a minute. Think about it. Rethink about it. And then the League of Nations. Now, the stuff I would write down is this. End secret treaties. Create free trade. The establishment of the League of Nations. I'm not even drawing on the right stuff, am I? Uh, and then self-determination. I would make sure to write down the definition for self-determination because that is a term I think you should know. Along with autonomy. I know I probably have used autonomy for a really long time. And if I never defined it, I'm sorry. Now, the 14 points made Wilson really popular with the Europeans. They thought, oh, this sounds great. Except for, of course, Italy, because they were upset. Um, but at home, Wilson had a hard time convincing Congress this was a good idea. And so when we look at the League of Nations, the League of Nations was kind of doomed from the beginning. Uh, you got to think of the League of Nations as like an early version of the United Nations. Kind of like how the... Uh, Articles of Confederation were like an early version of our Constitution. It's like it, it kind of is a thing, but it doesn't really work. So it's a predecessor to something that's a little bit more effective. Now, I'm not saying that the UN is perfect. It's not. But it's the best we got, I guess is the best way to put it. Like all governments, right? Um, what is... Uh... Talk about it later. Okay. Uh, as far as the League of Nations goes... It's meant to be a way for people to sit down and decide, and I would write this down, a way for people to sit down and decide how to settle the dispute before it became a war. The problem was no Russia, no Germany, no USA. Japan joins and then starts taking over China and the League of Nations goes, hey, Japan, can you stop that? And Japan's like, we're out. So they go out of the League of Nations. So by the time you get to World War II, the four most important countries in the world for World War II aren't in the League of Nations. So if you're talking about a group that should be able to stop war, well, you need the big guys. And Germany, Russia, the U.S., and eventually Japan aren't in there. So not real effective. Because they don't it, like this... Um, uh, cartoon kind of demonstrates it's supposed to you got the dog of war there who's supposed to be you know out there 
trying to fight, and the League of Nations is supposed to muzzle it. The problem is the League of Nations was not effective at muzzling anything. Like, they couldn't do anything um, to stop you. Now, even to this day, the UN is rarely sends troops. Like, rarely. Most of the time, what does the UN send if they do send troops? What type of troops do you get? Peacekeeping troops, which basically means that they can stand there and be like, if you're a neutral, we can, you can stand behind us. Like, they can't do much, right? They're basically just monitoring the situation. It's like a hall monitor. Um, the only thing the UN really does is sanctions, like economic sanctions. They're like, hey, North Korea, stop sending rockets into the air. Sanction them again. Like, we just send a quick, this will hurt your economy. Hopefully you shape up. Um, and that's generally what the UN uses. Peacekeeping forces and uh, sometimes aid forces, but that's about it. Okay. Uh, this is the most important part of the Treaty of Versailles. You need this whole thing. If we're looking at what devastates Germany in the long term, it is the war guilt clause. Germany is forced to return Alsace-Lorraine to France. That is money, okay? Because they are losing what? Resources go bye-bye. Bye-bye. Then, Germany is forced to surrender all overseas land. Again, resources go bye-bye. I can spell. Limits the size of the German military. That's also money. Because when you spend money on the military, that generally helps your economy. Uh, Germany was not allowed to make or import weaponry. That's money. And then they're like, okay, and by the way, Germany, we're going to need some money. So you take away a bunch of things that make Germany money, and then you're like, we need money. So war reparations are basically like the war bill. It's like forcing Germany to pick up the tab and leave a tip. But the problem is they don't have anything to pick up the tab with anymore. Because you've taken away all their money and resources. So, this is significantly a problem. Now, the Weimar Republic does not make it better. Because what they do is they're like, print more money. That never works. But, you know, they tried. This is probably the most damning portion of the treaty, is the war guilt clause. This is like them saying, we accept responsibility for the war alone. It's our fault. When I discipline my kid, you, you have them say sorry, but they're supposed to be able to tell you why they're sorry, right? So most kids are like, I'm sorry, they want to move on. You're supposed to be able to like, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have bopped you over the head because I wanted that toy, right? So you have to be able to like describe why you did something wrong. In adult terms, this is like them going, Germany, what did you do? Oh, you did it? What did you do? All of it? Yeah, that's right. Sign it. So, yeah, it, Germany is going to be forced, and, and this is the problem. The Weimar Republic, which just got created, the first thing they do is sign the Treaty of Versailles. So if you're a German citizen, you're thinking, okay, we lost the empire, we got this new government, and the first thing they do is throw us under the bus. Cool. Um, most people in Germany are thinking, this is not going to end well. 
And most people out of Germany would be like, this might not end well. And it doesn't end well. So, shocking. Um, so that's World War I. You, you, you basically start a war uh, through a, a variety of problems. You got the five causes of the war. You got the militarism, the alliances, imperialism, nationalism. Hey, it might be fun. Uh, and then the assassination, right? And then by the end of the war, you realize, ah, we got to blame somebody. They all just pin it on Germany and like, this will be fine. It'll be fine. And it's not fine. So um, at the end of the day, the overarching themes of World War I are what? Perception and reality are different. Technologies, 20th century technology, they're fighting with 19th century strategy. And then at the end, they're like, it'll all be fine if we just pin this on one guy. I'm sure that they won't get mad. So World War I is kind of just the worst. It is. Um, we'll end it there, and tomorrow we will look at the Russian Revolution. Yes. And the Russian Revolution I will do in all of 50 minutes. And Friday you're going to have an assessment. I would recommend, because I can't go into a lot of detail with the Russian Revolution, there is a documentary on Netflix on the Russian Revolution that I think is pretty good. So if you are interested or you need more information, you might even just like play it in the background while you're doing something else if you want to. But I think it's like 50 minutes, if I remember correctly. So I think it's actually just called the Russian Revolution. I'll look, though, for you.